0: What if the story that the, the legend of the fall of mankind is trying to tell us is really the story of how exploitation always leads to violence? And what if turning this story into one about obedience that props up hierarchical power structures and control dynamics is actually moving us further away from divine intent rather than nearer to it? Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles. For all of us who are looking for faith and spirituality outside the fences and the walls of institutional Christianity. now This episode is going to be a little bit different than what we've been doing lately, and and I'll get to that in a minute. But first, as always, I'd like to remind you that you can find all of the content that our Accidental Tomatoes team is creating for our community on our website, accidentaltomatoes.com. You can go there to find every episode of the podcast, as well as regular blog entries, on a variety of topics related to deconstruction, social justice, and liberation theology. And if you're inspired by our work, and if you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn how you can help us create and curate content that's helping people navigate the difficulties of spiritual trauma, deconstruction, and the work of just trying to build a just and more inclusive world to live in. Accidental Tomatoes is the official content site for New Wineskins, a fully inclusive, non-traditional online faith community rooted in deep, authentic conversation. New Wineskins is a member of the Reconciling Ministries Network and is open to anyone seeking to explore faith and spirituality on a deeper level than many can experience in the institutional church. If you're looking for a community where you can express your deepest doubts, ask your hardest questions, and be welcomed unconditionally, feel free to visit one of our weekly Zoom gatherings. You can learn more by visiting newwineskinsnetwork.org. So, again, I'm going to do something a little bit different with this episode. Uh, Rather than doing an interview, I want to try a little experiment and and let you all in on some theological exploration that I've kind of been involved in lately. And, And because I think. If we're going to be a podcast that embraces the process of spiritual deconstruction and reconstruction, I think it might be helpful from time to time to engage directly with that work and maybe to walk through an example of what it might look like for some folks in real time. Now, I also want to start this all out by saying that that what I'm going to talk about in this episode is not something that I've done a ton of research on. It may or may not be an original line of thought. I really haven't gone that deeply into it. But it's really just a question or a series of questions that I've been asking myself lately in my own kind of contemplative practices. And and as anyone who knows me will tell you, I am way more interested in questions than I am in answers. Uh, And to me, that's a big part of what the deconstruction process is all about. So what this episode is going to be is, is a little peek into what some of my own deconstruction work looks like. And and hopefully maybe that will be helpful for those of you who are kind of going through this process in some way or another um, to just kind of get an example of, of what the kind of questioning and theological exploration that goes into deconstruction and reconstruction um, might look like again. Yeah. So what I want to dive into today is the idea that the biblical narrative has far less to do with what we might call the disposition of our postmortem disembodied souls than it does with simply how we treat one another in the here and now in this world and how we pursue justice and liberation for the people that our religious and social systems and structures have often pushed to the margins. So over the past several years, I've done a good bit of speaking and writing along these ideas as they um, as they relate to the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, which is what I believe to be Jesus's seminal teaching, what, what many scholars would say is um, Jesus's seminal teaching, often referred to as um, Jesus's kingdom manifesto. Uh, I also believe it to be truly a liberationist manifesto, and so if you've read any of my work on that topic, or if you've heard me speak about it somewhere, you'll know that for me, the gist of that sermon is that Jesus is using his platform to speak out against the devaluing and dehumanizing of one group of people by another group of people or of of individuals by other individuals. And the more I've thought about that message about the inherent dignity and worth of each human being as really the heart of Jesus's teaching, it's really influenced the way that I view the entirety of Scripture. It really has become central to my hermeneutic, to my interpretive lens that I bring to the work of of biblical studies. And so as I've Read and studied and listened more and more to people like Pete Enns and Diana Butler-Bass and Brian McLaren and Richard Rohr, um, and most recently, um, friend of the podcast, Josh Scott, a uh, previous guest here on Accidental Tomatoes, uh, who, by the way, um, Josh's upcoming book, Bible Stories for Grownups, I think is going to blow a lot of people's minds. But, um, But the more, anyhow, the more that I've been kind of engaging with the work of folks like that, the more I've been able to really... More fully contextualize Jesus's message in the Sermon on the Mount specifically um, within its historical and political and cultural and economic setting, right? Of, of first century Palestine as a subject of the Roman Empire. I think that context really informs not just the Sermon on the Mount, but really everything, um, especially everything in the New Testament. Which brings me to a point that I've made many times before, and and many other people with far more impressive credentials than me have been saying this for a long time, and that's that the Bible is the narrative or the literature of the oppressed. It's the literature of the exploited, the literature of the marginalized. It's not literature for or by or of the privileged. It's not literature for the powerful or the elite. It is the literature of The oppressed. It is the narrative of exploited peoples. And so, what happened? So, just a a little bit of a, a side note, just for some context. So, most scholars agree that when the Roman Emperor Constantine legitimized Christianity as the religion of the state in the fourth century the narrative shifted, right? Rather than being a movement among the poor and the vulnerable, Christianity became a means to control and coerce loyalty to those in positions of power and influence and ultimately um, to to hold up the, the authority of the empire by using Christianity as its source of authority. And so ever since then, you know, for the last 17, almost 1800 years, Despite the many, many truly, truly, truly good things that Christians have contributed to society, Christianity has remained largely a religion wherein the powerful feel, you know, ordained to exercise dominion over those who are less powerful, those who are more vulnerable, right? And the primary tool that the powerful have used to enforce their agenda has very often been the Bible. But that, my friends, is, at least in my opinion, the very thing that the literature that comprises the Bible warns against. And I believe it goes all the way back to the beginning, to the creation narratives from the the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. And so for many generations, generation upon generation, the, the myth uh, that we call the fall of man, right, or, or, or the, the legend of the fall, right? That story has been related as a, a story about disobedience, right? About how Adam and Eve pissed God off by eating the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a, and about how everything, you know, went to hell, so to speak, from that point on. All because the first two humans couldn't follow orders, right? So the rest of us have been. Cosmically screwed from that point on, doomed to an eternity of torment, unless, you know, we ask Jesus into our hearts, unless we pray the right prayer in front of the right people in the right places, right? But let's stop and think for a second what it means to make that creation myth, that creation narrative, all about disobedience. Who benefits when we tell the story that way? You see, a theology that begins by painting a picture of a deity whose primary focus is obedience, to me, seems to set up a pretty sweet arrangement for those who would use that theology to exercise power over others. In fact, without going too far off down a rabbit trail that could probably be its whole own podcast, I think it's that kind of theology that gives birth to many, many, many historical movements of Christian supremacy from the Crusades all the way up through the surge of white Christian nationalism that's happening in the U.S. right now. See, when you have a theology that's rooted in obedience, you have to have a hierarchy to enforce it. And so over the centuries, powerful people have twisted Christian scriptures to support that kind of worldview. And it all begins with an interpretation of Genesis that envisions a God whose first demand is absolute, unquestioning compliance. But what if that's not the point? What if that was never the point? The heart of the Sermon on the Mount, in my opinion, is that series uh, of statements that that have that little phrase, you have heard it said, you know, fill in the blank, but I say to you, you know, those statements that Jesus makes in that historically rabbinic teaching style um, at the end of of Matthew chapter 5. Each one of those statements, those you have heard it said, but I say to you statements, is meant to show Jesus's original audience how their religion had been missing the point by allowing their interpretation of the law of Moses to be used to benefit privileged people at the expense of others. What Jesus was pointing to was not a creedal faith or one based in rules and regulation. It wasn't one based on original sin, but it was one based on original goodness. So it's not the acts that Jesus discusses in those statements. It's not it's not the acts of murder or adultery or divorce or manipulation or retaliation. It's not those acts themselves that Jesus is warning his listeners against. It is the dehumanization of others behind those acts that allows those acts to happen. It's not about those individual so-called sins, right? It's about the overarching sin of exploitation, of advancing one's own interests at the explicit expense of someone else. All of which points us back to Genesis. What if The original sin, so to speak, that disrupts the created order of original goodness isn't so much disobedience, but what if that original sin has more to do with exploitation? What if the story that the the legend of the fall of mankind is trying to tell us is really the story of how exploitation always leads to violence? And what if turning this story into one about obedience that props up hierarchical power structures and control dynamics is actually moving us further away from divine intent rather than nearer to it? Let's look at it this way. In Genesis 3, which is where this, this story that we call the fall happens, right? We, we get this story in Genesis 3 of, of the first woman, Eve, being tempted by a talking serpent, to eat from the one tree in the Garden of Eden that God said was off-limits. Now, in the obedience-based narrative, Eve's act and then everything that follows it is an allegory for why the world is the way it is and why humans are the way we are, imperfect, selfish, and ultimately disobedient. So in this telling of the story, God's holiness demands that we puny humans be separated from God and punished until such time as God decides to let us off the hook. Can you see how that sets up a perfect scenario for people of power to create religious structures to maintain their status? If our primary sin is disobedience, if that's the evil act out of which all other evil flows, it requires powerful people, historically, of course, men and and more recently white men, to, to mediate obedience on God's behalf. But what if that's not the intent of the story? What if instead of seeing it as a story about disobedience, we thought of it more of as a story about exploitation? Now, I've, I've never put much stock in the theological theory that the serpent in in the genesis story represents some personification of evil called satan or the devil I, I actually i don't think that biblical literature broadly supports the idea of a single spiritual entity that sneaks around trying to ruin people by making them disobey god again i see that character as an invention of power structures to use fear to control and manipulate people but as a literary device that externalizes human evil, the serpent as personification for exploitation, makes perfect sense. The serpent exploits Adam and Eve's fear, which I suspect is probably best understood as the very human fear of inadequacy. So what if the forbidden fruit isn't meant as a test of obedience, but really a test of unity and solidarity between humanity and nature, and by extension, within humanity itself. So the story starts with violence against nature, you know, as a result of this exploitation, which results in a struggle between humanity and the land. And that's what we get if you read on through Genesis 3, right? Because humanity saw nature as something you know, in quotation marks, less than, right? Something to be used and exploited rather than something to live alongside in symbiotic harmony. Very quickly, by the time we get to Genesis 4, that exploitation and violence turns from humanity versus nature to humanity versus humanity. Cain's murder of his brother Abel is the ultimate expression of exploitative violence, Because Cain's offering to God was viewed as less pleasing than Abel's, Cain's fear of inadequacy leads him not to reconciliation, but to violence. And that's the theme that plays out over and over and over again throughout both human history and the biblical narrative. Over and over again, people are given a choice between reconciliation and exploitation, Prophetic figures appear from time to time to attempt to awaken the people to their exploitative and violent ways, but they're almost always overcome by the very violence that they sought to end. Instead of repenting or changing our direction away from exploiting and marginalizing those whose labor and loyalty uphold our hierarchical power structures, we instead continue to succumb to the obedience narrative that allows those systems and structures to continue to thrive. By the way, this is why I find the whole you know, heaven and hell narrative to be so toxic. It's so easy for those in positions of power and influence to dangle either eternal blessing or damnation like a carrot on a stick to control other people's actions. It's an exploitative theology. It preys on people's fears in order to keep them in line, to maintain the status quo, and to ensure that the powerful remain in power by demanding obedience from those over whom they exercise that power. And it's that tendency toward exploitation that I believe is the real essence of what we call sin. Think of it like this. If we can believe the writer of First John when he declares God is love— we have a picture of love as the creative force of the universe, the glue that holds everything together. By the way, this is a view of God that was perhaps best articulated by the early 20th century French priest, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, whose name I always mispronounce. Uh, and, and it's a view that's held to by many in the Franciscan and Jesuit movements, among others. So So this is not a new and original idea. But if it's true that God is love, And if it's true then that love is what creates all things and holds all things together and sustains all things, and if what we call sin is a separation from God or or a separation from divine love, then the essence of sin is whatever separates us from love. In other words, sin is a word used to describe the things we do that are contrary to unconditional love. So to view sin as simply disobedience is, in my opinion, to say that love is not unconditional, but that love is fully conditioned by our obedience. It seems to me that what that does is to say that God really is not love, you know, um, but that love is simply maybe one attribute that God displays towards those who obey God. But if we think about sin in terms of exploitation— That actually upholds the notion of unconditional love, because real love can never exploit, can never manipulate, can never marginalize, can never disenfranchise another. If that's true, then it follows that the goal is not to legalistically follow a set of rules and regulations meant to test our obedience, but to love so well and so deeply that we could never take advantage of other people, or for that matter, the planet or the cosmos itself in any way that benefits us at their expense. Anyway, that's it. That's the train of thought that I've been on lately. And and I could go on for for a lot longer, but I think you kind of get the gist uh, of, of what I'm trying to do here. Again, I'm really more interested in the questions that this line of thinking provokes than in actually arriving at any conclusions. In my mind, That's really what this thing we call deconstruction is all about, right? Asking provocative questions that make us think more deeply about what love could ultimately be, what what God or the divine could ultimately be, and what life could ultimately mean. Whether the conclusions that I've hypothesized here are correct or not is honestly immaterial. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about exploring the possibilities and seeing where that exploration leads us. And my hope, my friends, is that it might prompt you to ask some of your own questions and to think more and more deeply about what it ultimately means to be human. As always, if you have comments or feedback on this episode or suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to us. Uh, You can find us on social media. Just do a search for Accidental Tomatoes and drop us a note there. Uh, Or you can send us an email at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And so until next time, friends, keep on growing outside the fences and join us for another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.